So this morning I want to talk about fear. And practicing with fear. And cultivating fearlessness. And some of you may remember from a few weeks ago that I promised to talk on this topic because I've been reflecting on it quite a bit. Uh, I think it's a very powerful energy generally. It's very much um, a powerful energy in the society right now. It doesn't take too much... uh, skill and social analysis to see that uh, there's a lot of fear, increase in fear because of the economy, maybe for many people because of the uh, ecological crisis. And that also that even in the election campaign, there's a lot of uh, manipulation of the population to make them fearful. That that manipulation of fear is quite common. You know, whether it's uh, uh, warning people about the candidate will raise taxes or, you know, this person pals around with terrorists, that's fear-mongering, basically. Because it's not even, there's only been talk of one terrorist or former terrorist, but now it's multiple. (laughs) Anyway, so it's, it's, and... You know, or whether it's, um, you know, from the other side, accusing the other candidate of being erratic or in some sense implying that because this person is older, you should be fearful. And so it's very much um, in the air for, for many, many reasons. And I think in many ways there are, There are a lot of aspects of um, culture in the United States which um, increases the fear level. I've had the experience sometimes of going to other countries and realizing that some part of me relaxed significantly. And you may have had similar experiences. I experienced that just going to Canada. (laughs) Well, it's real because, and you know, <clears throat> that visceral sense is actually supported by statistics about the level of violence in the society, you know, which is statistic per capita, way, way, way less in Canada than the United States. There is, for different reasons, complex. There is a kind of there's a, it's a, it's a somewhat violent culture, you know, way more violent than Western Europe, for example, and and so. There are reasons to be fearful in a sense, but working skillfully with fear is a very large part of our practice. That's what I want to explore. The Burmese leader uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, this very uh, heroic figure who's been under house arrest in Burma for years and has been incredibly incredible stalwart she's been holding really the hopes of the burmese people and the hopes for democracy alive in her own being 
living under house arrest for years and years and years, under very difficult conditions, watching many of her supporters be arrested or, or killed, she said this. She said, the only real prison is fear and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. The only real prison is fear and the only real freedom is freedom from fear. So I'd like to talk some about fear and how to practice with fear when it arises. And really, when we speak of fear, we're really talking about a kind of spectrum that goes from certain levels of anxiety all the way to a kind of primal fear that, that we may very, very occasionally experience. So I want to talk about what the nature of fear is, how we practice with fear, particularly using tools of mindfulness and wisdom and inquiry and ways of finding antidotes to fear so that we can not be paralyzed by fear. And in a way, to talk about fear is really to talk more specifically about how we work with difficult emotions. It's really a big part of our practice is to know how to skillfully work with difficult emotions or difficult kinds of thoughts that are around. And I want to just touch base with that generally very, very briefly because the core principles of working with fear are the same principles that we would use if we were working with anger or sadness or grief or self-judgment or um, being caught up in some very repetitive mind state that comes over and over again and it kind of keeps us in a kind of prison. And those principles of practice are fairly simple. What's mostly leads to suffering with our difficult emotions is when they take us over. And when they take us over with their stories and with their narratives and when they kind of lock us in a certain kind of anger or they lock us in a sadness that is gets very solid or despair and so forth. And so in general to practice with difficult emotions the first thing is we need to have some degree of balance to even use some of the other tools. If we're out of balance we can't really use mindfulness so well. If the fear has paralyzed us, for example, we can't really use mindfulness. So the first way of practicing is to find what I call antidotes. It's almost a me- it is a medical term, really. It's to say, how can I bring the difficult emotion out of the state where it paralyzes me or has total control over me and just come back to balance? That's the first way to practice with any difficult emotion. And then the, some of the other tools we use our mindfulness, really to see what the nature of the emotion is, what's the nature of our patterns related to the emotion. Inquiry is a looking more deeply to really see what the 
emotion is about and to see how it works, to really, that starts to go into wisdom where we get a better sense of, oh, this is what it is. This is my, these are my personal patterns. This is the way the emotion uh, works generally. You know, as the uh, American teacher who's been a uh, monk for 40 or 50 years and teaches here about once every two years, Achan Sumedho, he always likes to say, oh, it's like this, and he holds up his hand. It's like this. Fear, it's like this. Despair, it's like this. And it's like we know how these emotions work. And one of the great benefits of meditation is we get to study these difficult emotions because normally if we haven't meditated or done some kind of maybe psychological inquiry, these are just things that take us over. And we actually don't know very much about them. And I know for myself, I never really had looked very carefully at anger or sadness or despair or happiness or joy for that matter. And part of what we do in meditation is we study them. The whole uh, key in doing this, I have found, is that we don't so much uh, just get rid of the difficult emotions and adhere to positive emotions, but we actually find that the emotions have something to teach us, typically. And this would be my approach, at least, and I think the approach of many people, that we find in all of the emotions, typically, some intelligence and some positive energy that gets mixed up with reactivity and delusion. Sometimes with a very strong dose of delusion. (laughs) What we typically find, and I'll, I'll be very specific when we get to fear about how this works, but what we typically find when we look at very strong anger or very strong sadness or despair or something like that is that there actually is some intelligence in the emotion and some energy that actually could be helpful. But it gets caught up with a kind of reactivity of the mind that, and, and a kind of delusion. You know, so for example, I could be very angry, let's say, about something that happened in the society. And my insight might be connected with a wish for social justice. I could be quite angry. And I'm, it might be connected with both insight and with a wish to uh, do something, positive energy. Where it turns negative is when I just get caught in the anger, I never do anything, I just complain all the time, and, and I'm kind of locked in the anger and I polarize and I think I'm good and they're bad. And that becomes destructive. Martin Luther King actually said that the heart of a social movement, for in particularly the civil rights movement, was the constructive channeling of anger. You see, when it's destructive, we know what it, anger does when it's destructive. And so I think that's the same for fear, that we'll see, and I don't think it's too hard to see, that when we turn to fear... Fear is really, I think, from a biological perspective, designed to be intelligent. It's basically designed, you know, in animals or in us to to um, protect us, whether it's to protect us physically or to protect us emotionally. That a lot of our fears may be based on the fact that there is a real danger. 
and that we need to do something. When you go out in the middle of the street and didn't look both ways, I don't know if any of you do that or you were trained well (laughs) in youth, but let's suppose you do that and you suddenly feel a kind of fear in your body. That fear clearly uh, has some intelligence. It's telling you if you don't want to have something very harmful happen, to act. And so fear is quite interesting because it's, it's what I'm going to suggest that all of these emotions are mixes. They're kind of complex. And what the work is to actually disentangle the intelligence and the positive energy from the confusion and the reactivity. What that means is we don't try to just get rid of the emotions. If we do that, we lose the intelligence. Now, sometimes we have to just say, you know, anger, you're the old reactive anger and, you know, keep your distance and so forth. So let's, let's go look at the nature of, of anger. I'd like to just invite you to go inside for a moment and reflect on a moment maybe in the last week if you, when you may have experienced anger. I'm sorry, when you may have experienced fear. There may have been anger there as well. But when you experienced fear, you can, might recall the situation. It can be a lower level fear, that's okay. Try to get a sense of the situation. You might remember the actual location and visualize it. And try to feel what the experience of fear is like. (coughs) What's it like in your body, in your mind, in your heart, and so forth. And just stay with that for a minute or two. to just invite a few people just to say briefly what was an element of your experience of fear in terms of just just the not so much to explain it but just to describe what did you actually what's what's the actual experience of fear like helplessness helplessness okay what choking choking so something physical you know some kind of physical shutting down pull out can't didn't hear Chest constriction, okay. Confusion. Confusion, yeah. Lurching in the stomach. Lurching in the stomach, yeah. Paralysis. Paralysis. Hesitation. Hesitation? Agitation. Agitation, yeah. Wanting to run. Wanting to run, yeah. Nervousness. Nervousness. Burning in the stomach. Say? Burning. Burning in the stomach, yeah. Tightening of the jaw. Tightening of the jaw, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of a caving in of the chest. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of physical. So that's this is a pretty good 
sense of what the, what the nature of fear is, I wanted to read uh, two passages that give some sense of this. The first is, can get at uh, the nature of fear. This is from an account, this is from a, actually a biography of one of the great Thai meditation teachers of the 20th century named, Ach- named Achan Mun. If you go to a little gratitude hut there, you'll see a picture of him. And there are actually some pictures in this book. Not many of you can see this, but uh, he died in 1949, and he was the teacher of Achan Cha, Jack Cornfield's teacher. He was, he was a wandering monk. He wandered through the rainforests of Thailand and Burma, Cambodia. And for him, practicing with fear was a large part of the practice. There were tigers around. He would sometimes have his uh, students do walking meditation outside the caves of tigers. Okay. Here it's spirit. <laughs> Here at Spirit Rock, we use more gentle methods. <laughs> but it's actually true. And I, I, that gets into a whole set of interesting issues about animals and fear, because when the monks basically didn't have fears, the tigers didn't do much. Or much. (laughs) 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 Or actually, at least the story isn't here. Uh, Nothing happened. And it's interesting, you know, know, when we talk about fear in relation to animals. So here's, here's a passage. At night, when his mind is attacked by fear, a monk forces himself to do his walking meditation in the open. This is the battle between fear and dharma. So the fear comes. The whole body will be enveloped, will be enveloped by both a perspiring heat and a chilling cold by the desire to pass urine and to defecate. The monk will be suffocated and he will look more like a dying than a living man. The threatening roar of a tiger from a nearby place or from far away at the foot of the mountains on top of them or in the plains only serves to increase his already suffocating fear. Direction or distance mean nothing to such a monk. His only thought being that the tiger is coming to make a meal of him that he is coming at this very moment. No matter how wide or vast that area might be, he will be hypnotized by his own fear into believing that the tiger knows of no other place to go but the very spot on which he is walking. The passages for recitation to prevent fear disappear. Ironically, what remains is that passage which serves only to increase it. He will thus recite to himself, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. So you can see a lot of the elements that we reported, the changes in the body, the mind getting confused, constricted. There's another uh, passage I wanted to read from um, actually a contemporary monk named Tan- American monk named Tanisar Bhikkhu, who uh, has a very uh, simple analysis of fear, which I found helpful. He said this, Think of a deer at night suddenly caught in a hunter's headlights. It's confused angry, it senses danger, and that it's weak in the face of the danger, it wants to escape. These five elements, confusion, aversion, 
a sense of danger, a sense of weakness, and a desire to escape are present to a greater or lesser extent in every fear. The confusion and aversion are the unskillful elements. So he's basically saying that the sense of danger, the sense of weakness in the face of danger are what what I was calling the intelligence. There can be intelligence there when it gets caught up with the confusion and the aversion, kind of a reactive reactive quality, that's when it tends to be problematic. And so a lot of our practice is, and what a lot I'll be talking about, is when does fear become dysfunctional? When does fear become caught up with delusion, with confusion, with aversion? It's almost like... uh, We hear that uh, mountain climbers, particularly professional mountain climbers, actually are afraid. And the fear, they think, is something actually healthy. They say that the most dangerous mountain climber is someone who's not afraid. And yet, they're not paralyzed by the fear. The fear doesn't take over in some way. And so it's very helpful to actually look closely at the fear and see what's there. And I think we mentioned a lot of the elements. I want to just really focus on two main forms. One is the quality of the body reactions, or a lot of things mentioned, constriction, you know, the body, the body, you know, one person meant that we get caved in, you know, when we get afraid. Um, One friend did a study of people being afraid on airplanes and was sitting next to someone who was afraid and the leg was just jumping around everywhere. You know, a person's leg was just, this person was moving, agitated and so forth. There can be, the heart can pound more and so forth. Uh, and those kind of uh, qualities of the body can actually be uh, very difficult to work with. That's why when I get to how do we practice it, one of the main ways is to actually work directly with the body when there's fear. The other main aspect I wanted to point to is what happens to the mind with fear, or what can happen. I think it's not, it's not necessarily that it happens, right? Because we can have the uh, mind, as I was saying, the example of the mountain climber, there can be fear, and the person can be very skillful with the fear. So the aim is not necessarily to get rid of the fear, it's to get rid of the unskillful reactions that follow the fear. And that's, that's an important distinction to make. And so what happens with the mind? We get kind of paralyzed. We can just get confused. We can be like the monk in the forest. The mind just gets totally caught in a, in a tape loop, so to speak. The mind gets very repetitious. So when we notice uh, repeating thoughts over and over again and there's fear... It's a very good way to know that we're, that we're caught in that way. There can be a kind of uh, confusion. Uh, there can be a tremendous proliferation of thoughts and so forth. And so we can also, when we're not sure of things and there's fear, we can try to latch on to some meaning, to find meaning, because one of the aspects of fear is sometimes confusion. This is what uh, dictators and demagogues do. There's fear. Here, we'll give you a story. Wrap your mind around that. right? And so it's a very common way to deal with fear. Give people 
propaganda that gives them a simple story. And a lot of people essentially fall for it. You know, and that historically has, has often been the case. So how do we practice with fear? And it's really whatever kind of fear there is, whether it's kind of the low-level fear, you know, what I was describing. I think we, many of us carry around a kind of low-level fear maybe related to violence. I mentioned just going to Canada. I notice something physically, just relax. You know, or maybe, again, we, sometimes we, you know, we might experience that just coming in from the street and going into our house. We, something changes in the body. Or whether it's, it's a major kind of fear. And the fear seems to be connected with some sense of survival. It could be physical survival. It could be emotional survival. When people have done studies or polls of what people are afraid of, I think you probably know that people are much more afraid of public speaking than of death. <laughs> it's true. It's well documented. <laughs> now, what's that about? It's a kind of emotional survival, isn't it? You know, where we're much more afraid of looking like a fool than of dying. At least that's what we tell the pollsters, you know. And... Uh, but we're so we're afraid of a lot of things. So how do we practice with it? Um, I want to really talk about uh, I think three ways to practice with it. The first is to uh, be mindful. The second is to uh, work with what I'm calling antidotes, which bring us back into balance. And the third is to inquire and go deeper, almost to confront the fear. Those are three, three ways to work with fear. I think I want to start with the whole question of the antidotes because, in a way, if we cannot be balanced, we can't really use the tools of mindfulness or inquiry or calling on our wisdom. We just get caught up in the thoughts. Uh, Marty talked about being paralyzed. Or we have the same uh, story just takes precedence, you know, something bad is going to happen. You know, we just, that's all we can think of. And so a very important way to work with fear that we almost have to start with is we have to say, am I balanced around this fear? Has the fear, if the fear has taken hold of me, how do I get back to balance? And there we can use a number of different tools. Some of you know that the very tool of loving kindness, metta meditation, was designed by the Buddha as an antidote to fear. You may I've told the story from now and again of how there were a bunch of monks and nuns who went out into the forest and they found a grove they really liked. And as in the belief system of that time, they checked it out with the local tree spirits and the tree spirits said, okay, you can stay here. But they didn't think that the monks and nuns were going to stay so long. And when they stayed a certain amount of time, they said, these monks and nuns are here for a while. And they're kind of like the, you know, the house guest who's overstayed his or her welcome. And so they said, we want to, uh, we want to try to make them leave. And they, the tree spirits had the capacity to take uh, awful, gruesome shapes and forms. And they also had the capacity to evoke horrible smells. They did both. And the monks and nuns more or less ran back to the Buddha and said, help, what do we do? They were really afraid. And the Buddha said, I will give you loving kindness practice. Kind of interesting. You know, he didn't say, you know, go somewhere else. He didn't say, 
you know, let's uh, fight those tree spirits. He didn't say, what, um, um, uh, just suppress the fear. He said, here, let your heart be filled with a different kind of energy that shifts the energy. And loving kindness, when we develop it, when it becomes strong, and that's why the practice is so crucial, because a lot of our practices, like mindfulness and like loving kindness, are only going to be resources that can be helpful for fear when they're developed. We can't kind of do it once every three weeks, and then fear comes, and we say, okay, loving kindness, do your thing. It doesn't work like that. We have to practice it and have it be a strong resource. That's why daily practice for all of this is so crucial. And then when a challenge comes, the resources are there. And so loving kindness is a beautiful tool when it's strong. It can really shift the energy. It can be loving kindness towards ourself. I told the story about a month ago of how I used loving kindness when I was camping and there had been a bear around very recently. Some of you heard that story where I was um, camping out in the wilderness and a bear had actually uh, attacked several tents nearby a short time before. And um, I don't know why I did it in the first place, went there, but, <laughs> but I, I think they, we, I was told that they had actually found that the bear who was responsible and given strict lectures and... <laughs> Yeah, they had actually removed the bear. It's a big timeout. Yeah, big timeout. <laughs> and um, but anyway, I, for me, I, I, I did two or three hours of loving kindness, and because a lot of that fear is just fear of the unknown and and so forth. To yourself, is that? I did it to myself, and I did it outward to others. I found it was more. It's more going into the energy. It almost doesn't matter who it's towards. It's just getting into that energy which shifts things. I did it, in that case, I did it for two or three hours. Uh, you know, stayed up a little late that night until things settled. And then I went to sleep and it actually, I didn't have the fear for the rest of the time there. I stayed another eight days in the same place. You know? When you say did it, does that mean you repeat those four? Yeah. Just over one? You just do it once and then immediately the other? That's how, yeah, that's how the okay. practice works. It's really the repetition over. of the phrases in metta. May I be happy. And you know, it's, it's not saying, may this fear go away, or may I... It's, it's really actually shifting the energy. Mm-hmm. And this can help with certain kind of fears. You know, I know I and others often use it for the kind of fear where there's some anxiety in the middle of the night, and you wake up, and it's maybe not huge and paralyzing, but it's there, and it can take over. You go right to loving-kindness right away. And, it, and when you get good at it, it you just... You don't go into the negative state. And so that's a very effective antidote. Uh, Another antidote can be grounding further in the body. You're feeling fearful. A lot of the fear is connected with telling oneself stories about how bad things are going to be. And so this is where, in the long run, mindfulness is going to be helpful because you're going to be able to identify what those stories are and say, Again, I'm thinking a lot about the presidential debates. There you go again. <laughs> That's a reference to the debate between what Reagan and Carter, 1980. Getting a little esoteric here. But, um, but it's basically to identify the patterns. Another way to work with that is to really keep the, keep the energy, get the energy lower so you're in your body. 
So something like walking, being in nature, is going to be very helpful if there's a kind of fear, especially if it's kind of a, not a hugely intense fear, but it's just kind of around. So some kind of grounding in the body is going to be very, very helpful because it's going to take the energy down, fear, and it's going to also stabilize some of those bodily aspects that we, that we mentioned. A third way, of, uh, a third kind of antidote is being with beauty. Again, this is an antidote. It shifts the energy. We, one is feeling fear. Go out in nature. Be with beauty. Be with art. Uh, Michael Mead, who I talked about, is going to be in Petaluma on Friday. I was very uh, influenced by him. He said after 9-11, the antidote to fear here is to be with beauty. <coughs> it's, kind of, it's partly, again, it uh, works in many, many ways, but one can actually shift the energy. It's hard to be really fearful if you're around a lot of beauty or it can, can shift things. And a fourth uh, aspect, a fourth way, a fourth kind of antidote is what we might call going into the refuges, finding one's refuge. In Buddhism, we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, in the, kind of the, exempt, in the possibility of enlightenment that we have with the Buddha or the, the basic teachings, the Dharma, or the community, the Sangha. These are all ways to come back to balance. Concretely, it just means I'm feeling really fearful and out of balance. Let me talk to, to a friend. Let me go to the community for a resource. A lot of how fear works is through a sense of isolation. We almost get isolated in our own overwrought mind, right, or overwrought body. And so anything which is going to break that is going to be very helpful. Being with friends, it might be to read texts, be inspired by people, you know, by exemplars who themselves may have dealt with fear, you know, to be, be in that way. The tool of mindfulness is really helpful because when we get balance, we can start to actually study the fear and see that, as Achan Sumedho said, it's like this. We study the nature of fear. Really helpful for me was one of my first retreats. I basically studied fear for about 10 days, almost all the time. You know, I got a sense of how does it work in the body? How does it work in my mind? For me, a lot of my retreats, um, some of my retreats, have been just hanging out with difficult emotions. A lot of them have been hanging out with beautiful qualities as well, but several of them have been, okay, this is my retreat where I hang out with anger. This is the retreat where I actually was with fear. Another one, a lot with judgment, self-judgment. And when one actually is mindful and studies fear, it's never the same, where you study anger. And we can do this in daily life. It's just to continually study it, just notice it. Say, okay, here's what my mind's doing. Here's what my body's doing. Let me look into that. Sometimes we can take a step further when we have good resources, when we feel balanced, and we can actually say, let me actually not just be mindful, but let me actually be a kind of warrior and go into the fear to actually say, I want to investigate this and see what it's about and work with it. And it might be not so much uh, to... Uh, be kind of aggressive, but it might be to say, here's an area of my life 
where I'm fearful, where I know I'm fearful, let me actually spend some time in that territory. Could be public speaking, right? For a lot of people it is. You know, take a public speaking course. Do some public speaking. It could be, for some of us, there may be a fear of... um, actually being oneself. For a lot of us, we have some fear in actually expressing what we really want. Others have no problem at all with that. <laughs> but for some of us, we've, we've been trained to think that if I really express what I want, I won't get love. And so for some people, simply to express what, or what I really want. For others, it might be to actually be truthful about one's emotions. There can be fear around that. This is the kind of fear which maybe at one point in our life was intelligent, but maybe isn't very intelligent now. And so there's a lot, we have to have those kind of discernments. And so we can actually uh, take the approach of deliberately going into a territory at times where we know that there's some fear, when we have generally have some balance and some resources. And then what we can sometimes find is that actually we may have been fearful of this, part, of this area of our life or of this experience. And it may be primarily because of a very, very old pattern. And we may actually find when we look there that the fear was a big uh, boogeyman and that there's actually nothing to it. A lot of fears, when we look closely at them, they tend to dissolve, particularly the psychological kinds. I think maybe I'll just end with a story, which I think I've told here before, but it really fits this. And I want to tell it. This is from my own experience, where I was doing a retreat in England. Uh, this was some time ago. And I was, uh, I, was, I was doing a longer retreat. And I wanted to uh, experience uh, meditating by myself in a little cottage for the better part of three months uh, with working with a teacher about every three or four days. And I started off at the retreat center. It was in Devon in southwest England. And I was, um, at first, really uh, enjoying being there. And I was uh, actually eating my meals with the other retreatants. There were other retreats going on. I was doing kind of my own retreat. And I would go in the dining hall and eat meals there. And at a certain point, I decided that I wanted to um, uh, have a further level of solitude. So I decided I would eat my meals in my cottage. And I was mostly meditating in my cottage and then taking walks outside. I would see people. But I wanted to have a little more solitude. I started doing this, and I started feeling, within a day or so, my body started getting incredibly heavy. I was fairly still in my mind, but my body just started feeling incredibly tight, heavy, and I started feeling nauseous a a lot of the time. I got the sense after a while that this was probably related to fear and that it had something to do with a further level of solitude. There were not conscious thoughts about this. It was appearing on a bodily level, as a lot of fear does. And so I met with a teacher, uh, one of my teachers, And he said, you know, he had the approach of what, you know, you're getting kind of contracted. What's missing in your experience? And he gave me the model of the seven factors of enlightenment. He said, what factors are missing there? You know, the factors are mindfulness and um, 
energy and effort and inquiry and joy and stillness and equanimity and so forth. I said, what's missing is clearly joy. And he said, and I, he said well, why don't we develop that? And so I developed it. And I said, I know what we'll do. It'll just be I'll go back to eating in the dining hall because there was some way that that small action had gone across a boundary that was really scary for me internally about solitude, about being alone in some way. You know, it doesn't make total rational sense, right? But it, that's, how our, that's how we work. And, I, and so I went back in and sure, and I said, I'll go out and I'll look, spend my time. This was kind of going with beauty. I'll spend my time going with and looking at spider webs and looking at trees and appreciating the birds and so forth. That was kind of... I, no one had given me this talk on fear before that, but I just kind of knew that would help me come back to balance. And it did. I came back to balance within a few hours. The nausea went away, you know, and, and I was kind of happy. Oh, this meditation is so cool, you know. And, um, and I was kind of a little bit self-pleased and, you know, so forth. And then I was working with two teachers, and the other teacher came, and she said, well, that sounds great, but what about the fear? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and she said, what about that? And she said, you know, maybe it's good to look at that. And I said, I think you're right. And I, you know, and I knew that it was, would simply come again by just taking my meals in the cottage. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll go back and I'll look at it. But um, this was the morning. I said, I won't do it for lunch. <laughs> I'll do it for dinner, kind of <laughs> buying time, you know. <laughs> and so, and so I, um, I did, and I gave, you know, I had about you know seven or eight hours or so, and I gave myself pep talks. I read all these spiritual texts. I got myself, kind of built myself up as this warrior. I was going to really be with the nausea and be with it. And when it came, I was going to be a warrior and really deal with it and confront the fear and go deeply into it and so forth. And I, you know, gave these pep talks and got all ready, and then I. You know, dinner time came. I went and got my meal. I brought it back into the cottage, and I sat down. And I was just, you know, really, really ready to battle my demons and do fight with it and so forth. And I got really up for it. And then I uh, kind of waited for the nausea to come, and uh, basically, not, nothing ever happened. No nausea, no contraction, no more physical manifestations of the fear, and it didn't happen for another two months. <laughs> not really no it's 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 yeah it's well it's uh i i want to just end with that story but what is that about i i would interpret that as saying that actually a lot of fears are propped up they're like these boogeymen that stare down at us but when we actually look at them they're not what they look like you know they're they're actually uh it's like Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When we're not afraid of fear, I was not afraid of fear, the fear tended to evaporate. And that's something huge for working with fear. It can give us some encouragement. And once we do this a few times, we start to say, oh, this is how a lot of fear is. It's something that's from the past or it's, that's really built up because of some of my own confusion or delusion. And when I actually look at it, when I actually have courage to go into some area, I find that I'm not afraid. 
So I think I'll end there. I see some hands coming up. And you can keep the recording going. Okay. Yeah. And I will, yeah, just want to end with that. And maybe let me just invite about 30 seconds just of silence to sit with it, and then we'll take some questions and discussion. Please, yeah. When I was listening to your story, I was uh, noting that, that what I was getting from it like, yeah. uh, was that you came to a choice. Yeah. You went from feeling no choice to choosing. You chose yeah. to, once you recognized what the fear yeah. entailed, that you chose to go back to that place and therefore didn't experience it the same way again. That's right. And... Um, I remember I was in an armed robbery. Yeah. And um, guns were actually going off. Yeah. Well. And um, I thought I might die in yeah. that moment. And I remember going, well, what's going to move me out of fear? Because I don't want to die afraid. Yeah. That was the choice well. that I wanted to make was to, if I was going to die, yeah. not to be afraid. And so I chose in that moment peace. Yeah. And once I made the choice, I was no longer afraid. Yeah. And, and I realized that was such a powerful lesson for me about yeah. just knowing that there's still a choice point with everything, you know, and to yeah. find where that choice is. And that's what I hear all the yeah. time in your story. Yeah, it's a great story, and it is complimentary, and it, it, it also points to uh, actually a few things there, that, that you had some choice. A lot of what we were seeing about fear that's most difficult about fear is that it takes us over. There's no choice, has total control. So anything which kind of brings about some choice, and that we could say that that was a wisdom dimension. You know, it was saying, even in this difficult circumstance, I want to live with my own integrity, whatever the circumstances are. And that would be kind of calling on your deeper values, we might say. That would be a kind of uh, an antidote, to use my language, like you're taking refuge in what was most important to you. And it actually, you called on it, and you got a, you got responses, and the uh, and it shifted things. In my example, also, uh, I had a choice, but actually, you saw I had to go, uh, kind of build my resources for about four days, before I went back into that. That's another significant point, maybe in the story, that sometimes we ha- we have to be realistic about our capacities in the moment. Sometimes we're not ready to deal with a fear, and sometimes we are. You know, and the, ch- the choice point is when I, th- you know, I knew I was ready. I could deal with it. I thought it was going to be rough and a horrible experience, but I thought I, I had some capacities. Sometimes we don't. And so the building of resources, and this is where, where the daily building of resources like loving kindness or mindfulness is really crucial for this because then we can call upon it. But sometimes we're not ready to go into fear, but we have to say, let me, I know it's important and I want to do it later. And that's legitimate. You know, or that we, that we can't stay balanced. And I think if we can't stay balanced, it's really important to know that. And then we build ourselves to have more balance. Yeah, please. Yeah. I was thinking of perhaps a similar circumstance, but I experienced it differently. Maybe it was choicelessness. Um, twice in my life... Um, 
once with a shark in the ocean and once with what seemed like an incipient head-on uh, yeah. collision, there didn't seem to be a choice, but there was just a surrender. Yeah. There was just a moment of meeting it. Yeah. And I wasn't aware of choice, and there was no fear. Yeah. Uh, which was um, a wonderful discovery. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that sometimes in those moments. And, and how many people have experienced something like that? In some moments which could be fearful, we find that something else is there. Yeah, so it's, it's common. And I, I know I've experienced that as well. And it, it kind of surprised me, right? That, that we find... And I, I personally, when I experienced that, I attributed it to uh, some years of practice. You know, maybe it would have happened otherwise, but I attributed it... In my case, it was, um, I don't know if I should, I should tell all the story because my, my mother's actually in the audience and I don't want to. <laughs> anyway, I think I won't. <laughs> it's okay, but it, I don't know if you know all the details. Of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no fear, it's. My face is, feels like it's getting red. <laughs> so, uh, other questions, please. <laughs> Rebecca, please. I'll save this moment. Um, when, when something really large is happening, I was mugged, and um, mm. I'm able to, in that moment, become centered somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's really in the smaller moments where yeah. my fear is I'm quick to anger with it. You know, yeah. just like the this morning I got really mad about my daughter not putting her shoes on for the 19th time that I yeah. asked, you know, and trying to get out the door. And um, I noticed that, I, so the frustration, just put your shoes on. But when I track it more deeply, it's the fear is, am I going to have to put her shoes on for the next eight years? You know, yeah. is she going to put her own shoes on? And... Um, <laughs> I am not able to to release I, I the frustration all the way to this sitting. The frustration was with me, just the yeah. things of you know taking care of another human being. Yeah, that's when I I'm not able to yeah choose in that way. You know, I choose that this is fine. You know. Yeah, or you. <laughs> Their mothers might know. But it's a. <laughs> choose it. I don't mind, but it doesn't feel that way. That's a good example because I think what I'm, what I really want to encourage, and I wish I would be coming back next week, but maybe we can continue exploring fear in December as it gets darker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, really encouraging for these more, these daily life experiences where I experience, I have a public presentation, I experience some fear where something like uh, that experience with your daughter comes up or there can be some fear about, let's say, having a hard discussion with a friend or something. And I think then we can apply some of these tools. You know, we can, we can try to be mindful. Very helpful, actually, to be mindful of that fear and watch what your mind is doing very helpful even to say, what am I actually afraid of? Mm-hmm. You know, and actually that would be some inquiry. What's really here? What is this about? Because sometimes the fear uh, doesn't let us know what it's actually about. It just translates into 
being upset with your daughter. But you, you were able to actually say, okay, it's about, I, I'm because fear is always fear of the future. Mm-hmm. It's helpful to remember that. It's the fear that we basically will have some experience that will be painful in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not about present experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about something in the future. And uh, if we can actually say, what is actually the content of the fear Sometimes, and then to actually be with the fear, it can essentially work through the reactive aspects. That's what we're interested in doing. We're interested in working through the aspects of fear which are paralyzing, which are have repetitive thoughts based on the same story. What's the story in your case? I'm going to have to do this forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to do it. And so we can, when we actually know that, when we actually see the story, that can come from the mindfulness. That's extremely helpful. Because then, of course, we can ask, you know, is, is it true or do I have options, mm-hmm. right? And it may, it may be, it, uh, in this case, it, and in some of the others, it sounds like it has aspects of being legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. You know, but... <laughs> <laughs> legitimate just means that you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's something real. It's not you're not making something up. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes we make stuff up, but, you know, so then, but the, the point is to be mindful, to use the antidotes, to be with it with balance, and then out of that, there may be a need for action, but your action can come out of not being, uh, as it were, taken over by an unexamined story. Because that's what usually happens. And so you can just be mindful, sit with it, examine it, you can ask, what's, are there stories I'm believing? Are there beliefs I'm believing? Mm-hmm. You can also ask the deg- about the degree of truth that there is. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the story is actually, when you actually ask that question, they dissolve. Sometimes, sometimes there's still something to them. And then, but then, so the aim isn't to get rid of fear, but it's to not be uh, taken over by reactive fear that paralyzes us and makes compassionate and wise action impossible. Mm-hmm. And we have all these things to experiment with, explore in daily life. Yeah. Maybe the last one and then we'll have really done. Yeah. to that. I'm very much carrot-driven towards things. And I was reading this, I can't remember what periodical it was in, but it was about neuroscience and about how when we name something, your brain actually re- releases some chemicals to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And so it's made me uh, really much more motivated to say, oh, I'm sad or oh, I'm lonely because I'm hoping for the, the hit of whatever I'm going to get. But um, it's really helped my practice for the carrot sort of concept of it. But, and I, th- I don't know if it was dopamine. I can't remember what it yeah. said it was released, yeah. but they are showing studies that, oh, interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Would you like to do some more on this in, in yes. December? Yes. 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 Yeah. But don't, 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 you don't, yeah, some of you will have worked through all your fear by then, but, but don't, don't stay fearful for December just for the sake of, <laughs> uh, so let me just end by reminding us of the nature of the practice. It's especially to work with, um, first, if there's lack of balance, antidotes. Then if you are balanced, to work with mindfulness, inquiry, sometimes going into areas which are challenging deliberately when you're ready. 
and just trying to see what's there, knowing that the, that the problem is not fear, but it's our, as it were, reaction to fear. And the fear can offer intelligence and something helpful, but when we get caught up in it and get caught up particularly repetitive thoughts, unexamined stories and so forth, we don't act wisely or compassionately towards ourselves or others. So let me just end with one quote, and then we'll sit just for uh, about 30 seconds. This is from uh, William uh, Butler Yeats, the poet. And it's really about actually the courage that it takes to look at fear. Because that's part of what's developed. When, we're, when we actually work with fear, we develop the opposite of fear. We develop courage. To look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. To look at oneself unflinchingly <coughs> takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. That's what we're doing. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute with whatever may have been helpful for you and any intentions which come out of the morning. And so we end the morning in the very traditional way of remembering that we do this practice, in this case of working with fear, not just for ourselves but also for others. We offer the fruits of the morning, what's been helpful, out beyond these walls, out into the world for the benefit and the healing and ultimately the freedom of all beings. Thank you.